to Ask an Addiction Specialist. I'm Bob Weathers. I'm really pleased and honored to have a guest with us for our, our first guest here for our podcast. This is Scott Killaby. And I'm really happy for you to be here, Scott. Thanks, Thanks for Bob, coming. Yeah, I really appreciate it. I want to just say a few words uh, about Scott, and then uh, we'll be moving into a dialogue. Um, and uh, I think my introduction will kind of set up our, our beginning conversation. I was just talking to Scott. I, I, I first encountered your material early in my own recovery, uh, uh, a little over five years ago. I had a real interest in finding out what resources there were out there uh, online in regards to mindfulness applied to recovery. And you came top of the list. I mean, you just, you've been really active in that area. And uh, certainly kind of intersecting with that, very, very much related to that, was all of the, the thought and spirit you've uh, put into uh, uh, understanding the relationship of spirituality to recovery, specifically non-dual spirituality. And so that was my initial introduction uh, to your work. And I, I, I read resources of yours online. I may have even viewed some videos. I do remember reading, though, reading material with a lot of interest. Was aware of books that you were writing, books you had written, books that were coming out. And uh, I'll say a word about that more in just a moment. And, uh, and then it kind of came full circle in the last several years. Uh, in this podcast, Scott, I started by introducing kind of the, the basics of integral theory applied to recovery, you know, yeah. very much in the... Uh, in the vein of what uh, John Dupuy and others have, have worked on. In conversation with John Dupuy, the author of, of the first book, In Integral Recovery, uh, just more recently we went, we went to a conference and he said he had just uh, met with you with, with what was called Radical Recovery Summit. The title piqued my interest, but it was your association with it. It was actually your leadership, your sponsoring that. And uh, I had a chance to uh, review uh, the, the uh, panel discussion. Lynn Fraser uh, hosted that, and, and you all participated. And I was very drawn to you, and, and I mentioned this earlier. Um, it's very stylistic. People have different styles, but I really appreciated your taking a breath <laughs> and reflecting on things. I value that. and Sometimes I get anxious and I forget to do that, but I really value that. And I... I, uh, I, and it, it was like the medium is the message. You know, you were talking about the integration of spiritual resources, particularly in terms of addressing uh, trauma, and I will talk into that today. And you were doing that in a non-traumatizing way. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that very That's much. Good. And then just to draw it even just more, uh, a more complete circle, I just came today from, uh, I, I lead a men's uh, group at a local treatment center every Wednesday right before I come to this. And I came in today, and one of the gentlemen said, uh, he looked tired and said he was tired. And I, asked, I inquired into that, and he says, uh, as with a lot of treatment programs, he's up very early in the morning and just goes all day long from one activity to another, including my hapless group. And I said, it's ironic. I said, I'm going to be meeting with Scott Killaby this afternoon. So your name was in the room today, whose uh, uh, most recent book, as I understand it, uh, is on rest and the value of rest in the context of recovery. How ironic that it so oftentimes gets excluded in recovery work. And uh, we laughed about that together yeah. and probably cried about that some right. too. So uh, that's a bit of the background uh, that I want to, uh, you, we'll be talking about concepts that are uh, meaningful to you. I know that you have the Killaby Center and the Palm Springs area, I'd be very happy for you to speak into that. Sure. Uh, any way that I can support the work that you're doing, I'm very interested in that. And I'd like to allow the conversation just to kind of um, uh, flow where it wants to. I did share with you that last week we had kind of a primer 
on mindfulness here. I don't assume that there's necessarily any overlap at all between what I presented and what we will do today. Maybe the two of them will provide a more, uh, more complete resource. But I'd love to just go where we want to go today. I am very interested in hearing you talk about mindfulness in the context of recovery. Very interested in your uh, talking as you feel comfortable uh, about the uh, a non-dual perspective and how that informs the work that you do. I, I love your emphasis on trauma first. I got that from the yeah. Radical Recovery Summit. I want to recommend that you all go to YouTube, look up Scott Killaby, K-I-L-O-B-Y, Radical Recovery Summit, and there's, there's a lot of resources there, a lot of shorter videos. The one I watched is a little over an hour, and it was the panel discussion. I found it really valuable, all the contributions, you, Robert, and John, but I was particularly drawn to yours. And so wherever we want to go with all of that, does that sound okay? Sounds great. All right, all right. So I'll let you dive in if you just want to kind of, uh, where you ever you want to start, and I'll ask questions. I'm, I'm curious, and I'll ask questions as we go. Sure. Does that sound okay? Sure, that sounds okay. great. We, you had the mindfulness segment last week, you said. Yeah, I just introduced the basics of yeah. it last week. We did a little exercise, talked a little bit about mindfulness, kind of writ large, and I'd love to know your own experience and your own kind of stamp, you know, yeah. your, own, your own approach. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, the best way to talk about it is from, you know, really from my own experience, even though I've worked with many people yeah. using it now, but the, my own personal experience is most helpful. I'm glad that you mentioned that. And I should have underscored that. It was something I really appreciate about your presentation in the Radical yeah. Recovery Conference. I feel very similarly to you. If I can draw on my personal experience and appreciate your transparency with yeah. it, they can be really useful. It's not some experience distant thing yeah. we're talking about. It's like it's really right in your recovery. Well, not not and, so much theory either. Yeah, so. and I feel very similar to you. So I really yeah. encourage you bringing that here. Yeah, thank yeah, you. Yeah, I mean, I think when when um when I first got into recovery, my, my goal was to obviously be abstinent. Yeah. And I was in a recovery program. But what I found out, which is not really deeply insightful, because I think we all know this, is that mm -hmm. the, the, the addiction wasn't really about the drugs and alcohol for me. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I had a lot of secondary and process addictions, too. Mm -hmm. But I even found out that it really wasn't about those things. Mm -hmm. So, what you know, the question is, what was it about? And I, I kept seeking the, the answer to that question through as many different religious and spiritual yeah. and psychological programs and strategies I could. Mm. And, I, and when I came to the non-dual message, it really did resonate with me that perhaps who I think I am <laughs> is not really who I am. Mm. And, it, and if that's true in any level, I would want to know that, right? <laughs> Good to know. I, say that. I don't want to actually go on earth the whole time uh, living this with not knowing, you know, who I am. And I think most of life, it really is a sort of an identity crisis. We're trying to figure out who we are. Mm. And uh, I think what I was doing, which is what I think a lot of people do, is when you have these stories going on in your head um, about being not lovable or um, shame stories or whatever they are, anxiety-producing stories, that for those with uh, some sort of predisposition for addiction, it's only natural that we would reach out to, to, for something to medicate the pain of that. Yes. So not everybody goes to addiction, but some yeah. of us do. Yeah. So I, I learned quickly not to judge the addictions um, and then to simply start to investigate mm -hmm my mind, mm -hmm. but from the place of observation, from mindfulness, mm -hmm. rather than trying to sort of go in and, and make sense of things so much, which is more like the rational approach yeah. or cognitive mm -hmm. approach, mm -hmm. didn't really work that well for me. Yeah. What worked was to begin observing the mind in action mm -hmm. in the moment and seeing, oh, this is what I believe, and, and this particular belief is creating suffering. And 
you know, and that story that's going through, and that's creating suffering. And then recognizing that I'm actually feeling suffering because of what I believe, yeah. that must be part, at least part of the answer to recovery, is to try to dismantle or, or take, take a deeper look at what I was believing and to try to relieve the suffering that was driving the addiction. And then there, there came the first foray into mindfulness, and then it went okay. deeper and deeper and deeper yeah. again. I love the process that you're describing. It occurs to me it's a very inductive uh, a kind of bottom-up process rather than top-down. Yeah. You know, top-down I impose certain techniques or theories or rules, yeah. and yours was very... Uh, organic. Organic, yeah. built on, I loved your term, exploration, self-exploration, and you found you found something that made sense of it all. Yeah, time. it made sense, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, for those, you know, who are listening have some sort of cursory understanding of or beginner's understanding at least of mindfulness I mean yeah. if you talk about it, it's just really present moment awareness <laughs> so we can break it down to something simple <laughs> and as I started to recognize those states of present awareness more and more I was recognizing that that's really what I was looking for the whole time I was doing yeah. drugs yeah. Uh, when I would drink um, or I would take pills what it would do is it would slow the mind down for a while yeah. and all of my problems and stuff would kind of go away but of course that's not an answer in the end um, because of the temporary nature of the yeah. high yeah. and because of all the damaging effects that addiction has but yeah. what that was what was so reassuring is the reason yeah. that I bring it up is when I started to really f experience that state of presence I was like this f sense of completeness yeah. is what I was always missing yes. yeah so yeah. Yeah. that was the real key. You, you remind me of I think it's Christina Groff's book thirst for wholeness yeah. and I know that Jung used that term as well uh, that we all have this uh, innate thirst for wholeness and there's there's nothing shame worthy about of that at all it's right. like that's that's like that's our uh, deepest desire and you and I got routed into certain addictions. I thought of something when you said this a minute ago. About 10% of us are addicted. Well, actually, 25% of us, I read this recently, are addicted to substance if you include nicotine. Yeah. So one out of four of us are addicted to substance, alcohol and other drugs, including nicotine. Sure. But then uh, there's a recent study in the last year or two that 90% of us are addicted to some behavior, at least one behavior right now. And as I've teased, I've actually talked about that before. I think the other 10% didn't understand the question. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe we're too shy to, no. to share, but it makes it a universal phenomenon, and it's universal, and it's based in a universal need, yeah. which is this thirst for wholeness. Yeah, thirst. Right, I like the way that you break it down to that, that, that universal um, need for wholeness, and the way that we talk about it is that we're each carrying around a sense of separation and a sense of deficiency or lack, and that from that comes from this desire for wholeness, you know, because as long as we feel like there's something fundamentally wrong with us at the very core, of course we're going to seek wholeness. It's yeah. only natural yeah. that we would, but we, we look in the, in the wrong places, or at least we look in the places with regard to addictions until we know that there's a different place to look. Yes. Yeah. You know, we yeah. look, so yeah. we're just trying to survive until we can get to a place where we can find really a, a, a deeper sense of wholeness that's yeah. not based on chemicals. Yeah. Yeah. I know that it's been talked about this way in the Jungian tradition as well, that uh, my addictions are a poor form religious experience. Mm -hmm. And they're poor form for the reasons you just said. They're yeah. temporary and that there's there are other collateral damage relationally as well as biologically and so on. But I like the fact that it's being claimed in that tr it, that it's it's my it's my best shot. It's my best attempt and and I I assume that it's built into what you're saying is that until I find a more adequate solution, I'm going to be really vulnerable to yeah. relapse because I mean 
not only vulnerable to relapse, but vulnerable to the secondary and process yeah, addictions that hide yeah. behind the main yeah. primary addictions. Yeah. 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 And so, in other words, and to sum up what you're saying, is sort of everybody's addicted, or at least 90%. Yeah. And yeah. The other 10% didn't hear the question. But, um, <laughs> no, I think that's, that's without, I didn't have any statistics, but I did say yeah. in the sort of the back of my book that basically mm-hmm. everyone's addicted if, good, you, good. if you define it very broadly. Yeah. And, and one way to define it is it, look, are you reaching out towards something or someone? Mm-hmm. to make yourself feel better on a regular yeah. basis. And if yeah. so, then that applies to yeah. most people. I remember, uh, I read this book before I got addicted. I, as I shared with you earlier, I got addicted to alcohol and other drugs in midlife. It wasn't like I invented addiction at that point. It was yeah. other addictions. I think work was, was a major addiction for me, a way to numb out. Um, I remember reading early on a book by Gerald May called Addiction and Grace. And I was so relieved in that book. I still remember this as clear as the bell, Scott. Uh, very early in the first few pages, he lists all of his addictions, yeah. and it was just—it was like a couple pages worth of oh, yeah. addictions, and most of them I had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it totally humanized yeah, it yeah, for yeah. me. It's like, okay, now you've got my attention. Yeah. This isn't those. This isn't that ghetto over there. This is human. This yeah, is this me. is human, yeah. and, and it's, it's, a, it's a bigger issue. It's for everybody's issue, really, yeah. because it's about because it's about the search for wholeness and. Mm. That's a human pursuit, you know, yeah. and then we're just f- trying to find ways of, yeah. of uh, filling up that hole, if yeah. you will. I want to ask you uh, about the premise that you just shared, and, I, and it's for clarification. Um, you talked about the thirst of wholeness, and then you talked about it in relationship to a feeling of deficiency or lack, something mm-hmm. like that. Um, what is your sense of that? I know that you've written and talked a lot about trauma, and I feel similarly towards yeah. you. Is it reducible to trauma? Is that too narrow of an of a understanding of it? It's a great question. Yeah. And I, I don't think I've fully answered it because of the, the difficulty with the concepts. Okay. Um, because I know exactly where the question comes, very insightful question. And I would just say, mm-hmm. you know, from what I can tell of the people that I've worked with in my own life is mm-hmm. that something happens to us developmental years or a few things happen to us mm-hmm. that create traumatic like responses in the body mm-hmm. but they also create scripts or they at least or they exacerbate scripts that are already there okay. like okay. I'm not good enough I'm unsafe um, I'm unlovable yeah. I'm invalid unacknowledged yeah. and so if you if you really talk to people um, and you and they get really honest and you have them reflect back who they really think they are at the core level they'll say things like that mm-hmm. you know they'll say well yeah my life is okay but at the core, I believe I'm not good enough. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm not sure what your question was, other than to say we like to focus on that because it's something tangible. Yeah. The search for wholeness um, is obviously what we're all in pursuit of. But you know, it's it's like it's it's so conceptual to talk about it that way. And mm-hmm. but can we talk about something that's more practical? What's more practical is how one feels and thinks about oneself. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. Like and then you can then use mindfulness to go and sort of. Uh, pick apart that story and see that it's not really who you are. And that's yeah. something tangible that you can use and apply. Yeah. Otherwise, the search for wholeness, it's like, well, how do I find that? Where right. is that? You know, right. Right. If I have a story of deficiency, I'm not going to find that. Right. 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 So you have to deal with that story, in my view. Yeah. And that story is somewhat related to trauma. Um, and it also, again, it depends on how you define trauma, mm-hmm. right? Because people will often say it's about uh, the, the physical abuse or the sexual abuse right, or something. Right. But I'd love you to speak more expansively if you're just what it is, what it is for you as you understand. And realize I'm not going to hold you to this, but I'd, I'd you know, love to hear your. I don't like any of these terms really, yeah. because really we're just talking about. Let's think about it in very simple ways. It's something happened to you that you weren't able to process emotionally at yeah. a certain age and made an imprint on yeah. you. Um, and then so therefore you're sort of acting out scripts 
and patterns and fight flight. And if you think of it that way, just that then it could be anything. It could be yeah. that my father had always looked at me a certain way. Yeah. He didn't say anything, but the way that he looked at me, or um, mom, I could felt never loved me, or yeah. kids at school made fun of me. Um, anything like that could yeah. be trauma like yeah. for somebody. I, I, you remind me of uh, the psychoanalyst Heinz Kohut, who said that we all have an intrinsic desire to be the gleam in our mother's eye. Mm. And just that as an image, whether it's father, mother, teacher, yeah. whoever it would be, life is, is that, uh, I'm also reminded years ago, I, I, I worked with a woman, uh, it was uh, across the country, we had, we had a coaching relationship, and she was, she, was studying, she was studying about trauma at school, and she felt guilty because she felt like she'd been traumatized, but she didn't have any one of these catastrophic traumas, inc including, for example, gross physical or sexual abuse. And as she read further in the class, she began to be aware that there's almost like death by a thousand paper cuts. Yeah. And it could be any of the things that you named and beyond that. And the tricky part with that is in some ways, and I remember Judith Herman talks about this in her book on trauma, it's in some ways easier to identify trauma if it happened in a catastrophic kind of way. Yeah. But what if it's more subtle or nuanced or yeah. more insidious? Then I can shame myself for for my shame, <laughs> you know, because I don't have any good reason to be shamed, you know, but it's like invisible. So I love your, I don't know, it feels like a more, there's more capacity to this view of trauma. There's also more compassion, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you're really, you're, we're really broadening the definition of these things. If you think of yeah. if trauma is that, uh, first of all, trauma is very subjective. Yes, like it is. Yeah. Whether you're traumatized is really up to you to decide yeah. and figure out. Yeah. But it's when you broaden the definition, and then you also broaden the definition of addiction, we're really just talking about the human condition. Yeah, it feels like to me. And it doesn't feel clinical anymore. It's just about, look, are you looking for something in your life that you feel like you haven't found? Mm -hmm. You know, raise your hand. Most people would. Yeah. That coming yeah. from that sense of deficiency, looking yeah. for wholeness. And then did things happen to you in your life that you weren't able to process in a healthy way? Yeah. You know, raise your hand. Yeah. And are those two things linked together? Quite often they are. Yeah. Because why else would I be taking something into my body every day if I weren't trying yeah. to push down what hasn't yeah. been processed? So, yeah, yeah I like those non-clinical ways of looking at it. I do, too. Yeah. I love the way you're talking about it right now. Yeah. My training has been clinical, and so there's very much this kind of at arm's length dissecting and diagnosing yeah. and so on. And there's value in some ways in terms of shorthand and so on, but it's vastly limited. There's something very humanizing about you, your style, your language of talking about yeah. this. I feel like it invites a curiosity, invites a non-judgment just by the way you language it. Yeah. And, well, and also it can be damaging sometimes to diagnose people. There, I mean, there's definitely, I like the way you say shorthand. Yeah. especially among professionals to yeah. talk about yeah. that. Yeah. And there's a place for a diagnosis mm -hmm. if it helps to get a treatment. But yeah, I'm very careful in the way that I word things because people already mm -hmm. think of themselves as deficient. Yeah. If you if you put a label on them and not understand the, the potential net emotional impact mm -hmm. of that label mm -hmm. and how one identifies that mm -hmm. with that, then you've, you know, they say do no harm as a healthcare professional. Well, you just did harm yeah. because you didn't do it skillfully the way yeah. you delivered that. Yeah. And so now you've got, you've added mm -hmm. suffering to the person. So... I just like these non-clinical ways because I think more people can connect with the descriptions and, and then it's, it's less um, likely that people will, will sort of say, well, those are the addicts over there mm -hmm. or those are the ones with PTS over PTSD mm -hmm. right, here right, right. and I'm over here. Right. But, you know, yeah. it's not really 
our experience that it's just one category of people yeah. it's that we're all yeah. dealing with different versions of this. I, I used to require a textbook in courses that I taught on therapy to graduate students. It was called Power in the Helping Professions. It's written by a Swiss uh, Jungian analyst. And, and he had this image, he called it the healer-patient archetype. And if I'm a healer, then you've got to be a patient because I need a patient to be whole here. And it's, yeah. it's, it's very seductive, it isn't is. it? You know, if we can label something, then it's real. It and, is, yeah. uh, uh, and there's and there's a there's a, a gap between us. Yeah, I like this. I, I want to talk into something, and I've really uh, I only had a few conversations ever about this. There's even the language, uh, at least from my experience, and I will speak in my experience firsthand. There was a language early on for me about my being an addict that was really problematic for me. Oh yeah. Just just the label of that, and 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 it probably was attached to a certain kind of diagnostic you know lens or whatever. But um, I've really, uh, and even recently, in the last uh, uh, months or maybe the last year, I've really tried to be much more cautious about being too quick or facile with my labels. Even when I'm talking, let's say that, that, let's say that you're, you're my therapist and I'm working with you. I would much prefer how it feels for you to say, Bob, you're an individual who's seeking recovery from addiction than Bob, you're an addict. Right. The latter one goes right into my vulnerabilities of yeah. shame and the experience of stigma. Right. The, the former actually feels uh, human and caring. At least it opens up the door. Right. I wonder if you have any thoughts about this in your own experience. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. When people come to the Killaby Center, we don't yeah. place that label on them. Mm -hmm. um, you're not supposed to identify. You can, you can identify as an addict, but it's not required. Yeah. And, and In fact, I don't think the word addict is really ever said much in our center. It's strange, we're an addiction treatment center. Because for that very reason. I'm happy is, to hear you say yeah, that. Yeah. 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 Well, because well, yeah. the way you said it was in line with me. It's that I happen to be someone who's had a, experienced a pattern of suffering and addiction yeah. in my life. That doesn't yeah. mean that's who I am. Yeah. And once I take that on as an identity, I think mm -hmm. you said it hits the core stuff. It often hits the deficiency story. Yeah. You know, like there's sure. something fundamentally yeah. wrong with me, and I've just been confirmed that by a clinician yeah. Yeah. who must know what he's talking yeah, about, this, or she. This is an expert on addiction, yeah. and they're saying, "My addict." Well, I'm in. I'm yeah. in trouble. <laughs> right. But but also not using it as a way to deny the pattern. No. Right. No. But, in fact, that's usually been the rationale for it. You know, yeah. the reason that we're going to call you an addict, Bob, is that we want to make sure you don't deny it. But. Actually, what it does is it paralyzes me. I'm uh, in, in in the midst of my own core, you know, shame, so on. So, is it? I think the words matter. I, I don't want to over uh, over dramatize it, but I feel like I also don't want to under dramatize. I think yeah. the the language, the attitudes that go into that, and I, I I'm really encouraged by yeah. by by how you do this at the Killaby Center. Well, yeah. and you're also really uh, you're hitting on something that's very different about my recovery than a lot of other people's okay. recovery, okay. because the the label addict was part of the thing that I inquired into. With with mindfulness mm -hmm. and as long with all the other labels so like people ask me you know so how many years you have in recovery and I tell yeah. them but I said that has nothing to do with my recovery amen, uh, amen. Because, right with you right? Mm -hmm. because because the story of being in recovery is no is, is not me any more than the story yeah. of being an addict yeah being a recovering addict is no more so what, what I tell them is that my recovery is the experience of being present here in this room listening to you ask me that question and me answering, and that's my story, is that right now, there's no dying need, no de burning desire in my body to take a drug, and that's because I think I've become acutely aware of my inner body through mindfulness. Yeah, yeah. And that if that, but if that came up, I could take a look at it with mindfulness. Mm -hmm. And so the, the point of my recovery is that I have that present awareness, which we all have, and that from that I can use certain tools and 
sort of dispel things that are happening. Uh, but it has nothing to do for me with accumulating time or accumulating a label yeah. as a recovering addict. It really doesn't, and I, it's hard for me to even relate anymore with people yeah. who define themselves that way because, you know, because I because I don't. Yeah. Um, so you're touching on that too. It's just what recovery looks different with mine. It can look very different with non-dual awakening than it does in the in the ego-based way of. Yes, yeah. yeah, including the the use of labels and t turning me into a noun. Right. <laughs> that has yeah. this, we love nouns. This, yeah, yeah, we do love nouns. I, I had a couple of thoughts as I was listening to you. One is, I shared with you before we started the podcast today, that early in recovery for me, I was very drawn to refuge recovery, which was applying mm -hmm. Buddhist principles to recovery. My acquaintanceship with Buddhism was probably for 30, the previous 30 years, I was practicing Buddhist meditation and very drawn to Buddhism. I come from a Christian background, but was very drawn yeah. to uh, 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 kind of Buddhist worldview as a Westerner, I guess. And, uh, and, and I, I liked very much, very similarly, what Noah Levine and others have done in Refuge Recovery, which is to take the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism, which are really just human truths, a version of what you're saying, I guess, this is another expression of it that we we start off and and for whatever reason we suffer, it, owing to trauma or whatever else, and that our suffering seems to be related to some cognitive attitudes or perspectives, attachment and an aversion, and that it might be a good thing to become mindful of that. So what's going on? <laughs> you know, I liked that, and it take it took it right out of the medicalization or yeah. the, even the psychologization yeah. of of recovery is very appealing to me. There was that piece. There was another piece for me, and it's, it's simple, and I know you'll be aware of this, but it was very liberating for me. One day I just thought, I wonder where addict comes from. So I looked it up in the dictionary, and, and, and to realize it comes from uh, the root word in Latin for slave, I really like that because that, that's what it feels like for me. Yeah. I, I know what it feels like to be enslaved. Yeah. And uh, there's a, that feels like more like a verb to me yeah, 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 yeah. Than, than some kind of label. And I actually think that when I come across that word now, even addiction, yeah. I just think of slavery. It's like, yeah, it, it, it really sucks to be a slave. I hate how that feels. Yeah. But I'd like to find liberation in this lifetime if possible. It, it feels yeah. like we've known each other before. We've never met before this interview because the way that I talk about addiction is, is enslavement. Oh, you do? Yeah, without <laughs> having ever looked up the word, but it just... just Totally, that's wonderful. <laughs> but it came from an old spiritual teacher um, mm. who said, I can't remember which one it was, yeah. who said um, that the act of smoking a cigarette yeah. in and of itself is harmless, but it's the enslavement to it that's yeah. the suffering. Yeah. And I could relate to that because, yeah. you know, yeah. I mean, for obviously reasons, like yeah. the act of uh, drinking a beer itself is not the mm -hmm. problem. The problem is that I can't stop drinking it. Yeah. And yeah, so I just related to that mm. a lot. Uh, and that also takes away from the clinical, as you say. And I wonder if it's implied in this, as I'm listening to you, what you said earlier about how it is that we'll carve notches in our weapon of recovery, say, well, this is how many years or how many months and so on. Yeah. And I, I'll speak again personally. That's of limited use to me. It always has been a problem for me. Uh, and I'll tell you how it is for me is that that feels like that's awfully close to my turning that into another thing that I can be. And if part of my problem is thingifying myself, well, let's right. say, why would I want that thing or any other thing for that matter? Well, I would even say not so close that it, that it okay. you know what I'm saying? Okay. Yep. That, that it's not just a risk for people that yep. it happens, but it does happen yeah. that they identify with. And you may be I'll let you say place. that. Thank you. No, you know, <laughs> no but I think... No, I think that's really what I'm yeah. saying. I just, uh, it, it didn't work for me, and I'm not sure. I looked around me, it didn't seem like that was working. And how can that solution, which really isn't a solution, which poses other problems, how can that really be... Uh, the, what I desire in terms of, of uh, liberation. Yeah, and also people don't know that there's another way. 
So that's that's mm-hmm. the thing. Is like if, if if I'm being you know indoctrinated into a, a, an atmosphere where I'm expected to believe this and this and this about myself, right. and if I, and if there are no viable alternatives, yeah. Yeah. I don't really have a choice other than to do that. Yes. But the, but the thing about with mindfulness is it does offer a different uh, way of investigating yeah. all of that. Yeah. And so I don't know where I was going with that other than to say. People don't know that there's another way, yeah. so I, they're, they're innocent of all this. There's yeah. no, and you know what? In the end, of the, at the end of the day, whatever keeps, whatever makes somebody, no matter what path or whatever it is, gives them joy or peace or freedom. Yeah, well, right even if it's the story of being an act, fine, that's fine. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm right with you. But for yeah. me, I had that deeper desire yeah, to know the too. truth. And, me too. I, it reminds me of when I, uh, I was very young and I was relatively unchurched, and I got involved in Christian fundamentalism. And I lived in an area where that was rampant, a, a, a very rural area. And it was kind of the only game in town, and it worked for a few years. It worked uh, fairly well for a few months, probably. It lasted for a few years for me. And then there was an exposure to a bigger world, I guess, like that. But that's all I knew, and I really understand that. I think because I became addicted in midlife, became enslaved uh, to substances in midlife, I had already spent decades studying psychology and spirituality, and so there was a lot of other uh, items on the menu. And so the idea that there would be one truth for me, especially when it was a truth that that um, didn't didn't feel like a good fit at all, was really a problem for me right from the get go. Right from yeah. the get go, I felt like I I'll share this. I felt like that my personal purgatory was having to submit to this because I felt like maybe this is the penance I have to pay for having gotten so enslaved to substance and i don't know that that's a really positive motivation for complying (laughs) it worked i guess well i i think in psychology we talk about how some sometimes relationships are helpful because they're aversive and they and they they help direct us to where we want to go and in that sense all relationships yeah yeah Yeah. you know and just to just to because I know that the title of this is the advanced applications of mindful so i want to explain kind of a little bit more about that please yeah um the stuff that we're doing really is somatic based more than anything yeah, else. I'd love to hear more, yeah. And for again, going back to my own personal experiences, uh, you know, I think a lot of people think of mindfulness as, oh, that's the meditation, mm-hmm. or um, that's simply just observing your thoughts. It's yeah. part of it. Yeah. Part of it is observing the thoughts that come and go, mm-hmm. and recognizing there's a witnessing awareness mm-hmm. behind those thoughts, um, and the thoughts really are not you; they're passing through mm-hmm. that awareness. There, that's really kind of the basic, mm-hmm. you know, being present to the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, present to colors, texture, sound, mm-hmm. light, being here in the vivid reality, yeah. all of that. But the, what's, what's out, what I found so beautiful about mindfulness mm-hmm. is that you can take it into the universe of the body. Okay, I'd like to hear you. And so really for me, what I found out is that a lot of my process addictions were teaching me things that I didn't learn because once I put down the drugs and alcohol, mm-hmm. um, I couldn't use the drugs and alcohol to bring up some of the stuff that was because I'd quit, quit it. So once you quit something, whatever stories or traumas are connected, that sometimes they kind of go in hiding, or yeah. at least you can't use the drugs and alcohol yeah. to find out, to bring to use them and bring it right, out. Right. But I had plenty of process addiction. <laughs> okay. okay, one of sex addiction, um, mm. sugar, uh, yeah. porn, um, all yeah. that stuff. Yeah, because I simply chose not to just be abstinent from sex, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. What it did is it gave me an opportunity mm-hmm. to explore what I was feeling in my body during the cravings yes. and during the aftermath mm-hmm. of those things. Mm-hmm. And what I learned is I could go into my body quietly and I could learn to mine out the beliefs that were attached to mm-hmm. either very strong mm-hmm. contractions or repressed emotion. Mm-hmm. And I could actually find out, oh, this this feeling in my sternum that I've always had yeah. that gets that lights up every time I have a craving or something. Mm-hmm. 
that there's information in there. Yeah. And yeah. if I go in there very quietly, I can tweak out or pull out um, that information, which comes in the form of words that are believed or, or images, um, yeah. words or pictures. And as I pull those out and I, I can see the insight there, mm -hmm. and then and as those things dissolve, what I notice is that on a somatic level, I start to feel better. Yeah. It's not just that my head is clear, mm -hmm. it's that my body feels softer, more open, mm -hmm. warmer. Mm -hmm. and, and as I would go deeper and deeper, I noticed that my cravings were diminishing. Mm -hmm. so, um, so that was like a foray into like mm -hmm. a whole other universe is to take, mm -hmm. and of course, somatic psychology and, and other forms, this is not something new. But um, I think the, the methodology that we use is certainly our own. Yeah. In doing that. But. I really, I, I love what you're talking about. You remind me of, of what little I've read, and it's been years ago, uh, uh, reading Ramana Maharshi in terms of his self-inquiry. Yeah. I feel like this is uh, Killaby uh, Maharshi yeah, yeah. uh, self-inquiry, just, just the, the, the way that you've organically followed this. And, and as you were talking, I was thinking, is it too much to put it this way? That, that there are hidden pearls or gifts in my enslavement, in my addiction. Absolutely. Yeah, seen, seen rightly or opened into yeah. that I wouldn't access them any other way necessarily. No. Is that, is right. that fair Absolutely. To say? I mean, again, yeah. going back to my own experiences, yeah. like a lot of my addictive behavior or enslavement had to do with the desire to hide because yeah. of earlier trauma that I yes. had. Yes. So when I was bullied, what I did is I went and hid yeah. from the bullies. Yes. And then in hiding, I learned to indulge in substances which made me feel safer yeah. so then after you know fast forward many years later yes. into recovery and not seeing the connection to the early trauma mm -hmm. how I got reconnected with it was to go inside and start to explore those yeah. feelings and sensations that were yeah. connected to certain addictions mm -hmm. and what I came up is that the story what I came up with is the story I have to hide was sort of almost like deeply embedded into my mm -hmm. somatic experience it was like a feeling of having to hide like yeah. a you know yeah. So there's a great insight there is, is seeing that I, one I don't have to hide, mm -hmm. <laughs> and that having to hide was 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 an unseen force driving my yeah. addiction. And I how would I have known that without going deep into the body and exploring yes. where yeah. all that was coming yeah. from? Yeah. So. Even listening to you, my eyes are tearing up a bit, and I can tell you uh, what it's about is just uh, in the last days. I really love what you're saying, Scott. In the last days, I, I was aware. Uh, of uh, in my own my own uh, quiet time in my body, uh, feelings came up, and I remembered hearing a story that as a child there was a lot of violence in my family growing up, and there was a time in which all four of us kids uh, uh, crawled under the house to protect ourselves from the violence, and so my three siblings, one of whom is younger than I am, recounted this, and I have absolutely no memory of it, but when you talk right now about the hiddenness. Hiding was related to survival, and then I had to hide that from my mind for whatever reason, probably because it was just so damn scary what was yeah. going on. Is that, and my siblings looked at me and actually teased me for that. I wasn't, it's just completely erased. Yeah. But it's not erased, it's located right. in my body or it's located in my reflex to reach for substance or behavior. And yeah. it's amazing to me, and this, and these feelings will arise organically for me, uh, just if I just slow things down a bit, okay. you know, slow things down a bit, uh, and there's no end to them. The, the latest piece for me that I've been aware of, it's, 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 it's up around this one, is it opens me to feeling such compassion to that eight-year-old boy, to, to feel that feeling and to realize, what would that have been like to an eight-year-old who had 
far less resource than, than this 62-year-old has right now. It, uh, uh, I want to have mercy on him. I just feel great sorrow. Yeah. I'll weep to myself with this just yeah. out, of, out of deep compassion. Yeah. Who would wish that on anybody, much less right. an eight-year-old boy? Right. Yeah, same with me. With I mean, sometimes I wonder, how did that little kid get through all that Yeah, bullying? that's exactly Like, how did I do? I don't even know how I did that. Yeah. Um, but I, but we learn yeah. how to do it. Yeah. And, and we survive it, but we don't let go of it. No. It stays with us. No, yeah. no. Unless we have a really good, highly evolved and clear pa- set of parents mm-hmm. who are on it as soon as, but that mm-hmm. almost never happens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's my daughter. <laughs> okay. Maybe you have when my daughter was born, I remember thinking if I could expose her to like 90% less, I thought, of what I had grown up with, that would be a miracle. No, that wasn't it. That wasn't it. I just, I'd said, I, if I could expose her to 1% less, that's what it was. It was like just, if I could do that, that would be in the direction of evolving the planet. Yeah, yeah. And the fact is, I think she was spared 90% of, of that, which means that I'm a human being and imperfect. Yeah. But she's inherited that from both of her parents, and yeah. she just gave birth to her second daughter this last Tuesday. Yeah. And I observe her, and that's amazing to me in, in, in the span of one generation that there can be that much transformation. That's awesome. And then how that goes to her, her children and so on. And I, I say that in humility because whatever came through was completely grace as far yeah. as I'm concerned. It's good to if, if it was by act of will, it would not have worked. You yeah, know? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, yeah. And to, to imagine that we can do that, to, we can bring that kind of loving kindness to ourselves now is a huge mercy. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I was yeah. just, for some reason, a story's coming up as I was mm-hmm. working with the client early on with the, at the Killaby Center, and she saw the value of the work, mm-hmm. but she was afraid. You know, she was afraid to kind of explore some of the deeper yeah. stuff here. And finally I said to her, you know, you have a kid, mm-hmm. a small child, mm-hmm. you know, and look what has been passed on to you, yeah. generation after generation. Yeah. And immediately once she saw that, she saw the opportunity that mm-hmm. I can act, and something bigger than her sort of took yeah. over, and, she's, and then she went very deep into the work. Yeah, if you want to think, yeah, it's nice to think about this as generational and much bigger than just our own lives, right? Yeah. As if you have kids or, I mean, we're all so deeply connected in every way. I mean, even our suffering affects other people. I mean, we're constantly affecting other people. So when you when you work on yourself and you, you to to awaken or you know to embody this kind of thing, you're in a, without being sort of cliched, you're doing it for the planet. Mm-hmm. You're doing it for everybody because as one person gets clearer. It affects everybody, literally. Yeah, thank you. When we were coming in today, we were talking with our our co-producers are Austin Armstrong and Franz Salvatier. They're they're with us here today, and we were talking about some new technology that makes it possible to disperse or distribute today's podcast across multiple platforms. And where my mind goes with that is in the spirit of what you just said, Scott. There's some ego always involved, but it's really not primarily what's leading this. Is that if this can reach, if this can reach people, or maybe if ego's involved, ego would like to see people to be reached with the pearls. Well, there's that a light self-interest too. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's not everything is for selfish reasons. There's the desire to help that's yeah. based on a yeah. clear motive. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Can you say a word if you want to or not? It's it's almost like a paradox to ask into non-dual. Can you say a little bit more about that, just in the context of? Where we're yeah. going right now, I'd love to. Uh, it's it's a tricky thing to talk about, yeah. but non-dual means not to. Yeah, that's the most basic definition. But really, it's an experiential recognition where one wakes up to the fact that the ego is not who you are, and so it, literally seeing that your story is not, and that's what happened to me. Yeah, um, and what happened for me was in the moment of seeing that, I also saw, in a very very literal sense, that nothing was separate. That like literally, 
like everything at the table, the chair, everything <laughs> felt me as me. Yeah. Uh, when that sense of separation left, um, so that's yeah. it's non-dual is really experiential more than anything else. Yeah. It's a realization yeah. of they, as you say of sort of the deepest sense of who you are, <laughs> um, but it's really beyond the ego, <laughs> like beyond seeing that you're not your thoughts and you're not your feelings and. It had played a huge role in my recovery. I can't even begin. I don't even. I would not be here without that. I want to. I want to inquire into that. I noticed yeah. that that uh, Austin just uh, brought a question forward here. Let me read yeah, this yeah. real quickly, and we may come right back to it. But if we don't, I want to come back to what you were just saying. Angela uh, in our audience. Hi, Angela. Uh, asks mindfulness practices are usually done alone. Do you have any suggestions for using mindfulness and encountering the deeper hard stuff alone? I always say with a caveat, because sometimes you can hit something very deep and you actually need to be with somebody who's mm -hmm. skillful enough to help you through that. For sure. Yeah. Um, so I always kind of tell people that, that you know, you, you can always reach out to, um, reach out to somebody who does this kind of work that can help you one-on-one -on -one if that happens. But, I mean, if I can get some, just some really simple experiential tools. I mean, we use things like emergency measures at the Killaby Center. So if you feel overwhelmed because some very strong emotion comes up, there's just a few things that you can do. And one of them is just the part of what's, what's uh, the tapping. Is usually, there's, a, there's a tapping modality that taps on these different points. But you can just begin tapping right here. If you're feeling overwhelmed, just notice the tapping, mm -hmm. the sound and the sensation of it. Mm -hmm. Do it for like maybe 20 seconds or so and then take a deep breath and come into your, and start breathing into your somatic experience and watching the breath. Because what the tapping does is it unhooks you from the overwhelming thoughts that are coming up in that moment. Once you unhook from the mind and you come down to the body, a feeling is much more easier, it's easier to be with when the, when the thoughts are not in there. So tapping just unhooks you mm -hmm. from those anxiety producing thoughts. And then as you breathe down into you and just stay with that feeling really gently, breathing with it until it naturally subsides. If it doesn't subside right away, what normally means is that the, that the mind is still hooked into it. It's still playing out scripts or stories or labels. Yeah. So you can simply take a look at those deeper stories or labels that are coming up and then tap again to sort of unhook. You can keep unhooking from that until you get to a mostly somatic restfulness. Mm -hmm. And then when you're really with a feeling that doesn't have any thoughts on it anymore, the feeling is not going to stay around. Mm -hmm. It's going to go because it's only there because the thoughts are hooked into yeah, it. Yeah, thank you. It's really practical. Thanks for your question, Angela. But look, that's really instructive. I would like to come back to what you just said in terms of I thought you gave the simplest possible kind of invitation into non-dual experience and how instrumental it's been in your own recovery. Would, would you want to comment a bit more on that? Very interested to yeah, follow that with uh, you. Yeah, everything changed on the day of that experience mm -hmm. um, in the sense that whole identity that I had taken myself yeah. to be yeah. was seen to be not... Yeah. who I am in, in a very beautiful, positive, loving, joyful way. It, mm -hmm. You know, some people hear it and they're like, that sounds really scary. It wasn't scary at all. It was the most beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. um, what happened, though, is that from that, a lot of the stuff that I had believed before about myself fell away. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that a lot of the addiction was there because it was connected to that stuff. Yes. Yeah. And just, just various stories and beliefs and attitudes and perceptions fell away in that. And with so, there was less need. That didn't knock all of my addictions away, mm -hmm. because but what it did is when I recognized that basic presence, yes. there's something about it, it's like a light coming on, mm -hmm. and then anything mm -hmm. that's hiding in the dark started to come up for mm -hmm. me. And that was an even greater opportunity, is because mm -hmm. then I got to see some of the process addictions coming forward, and some definitely some unresolved mm -hmm. trauma and shame, mm -hmm. lots of shame. Yeah. 
And with that, 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 that awakening is really an awakening into present awareness where that's your predominant way of experiencing yeah. life. And then from that, you can, I was able to explore these deeper strands. I don't know how I could have done it yeah. before. Nobody, I mean, I'm sure there were books out there, but nobody gave me the map to say, mm-hmm. oh, you're going to have this awakening experience. <laughs> and then after that, a whole bunch of stuff is going to come up, <laughs> right? I'm sure I could have found the right. But so that's what we've tried to do is create mm-hmm. context for people mm-hmm. who are going through this deeper transformation mm-hmm. uh, so, that, so that they can get help all the way through yeah. to the end. Let me let me ask you a question. People that come to Kelby Center, people that come to work with you, Scott, um, I, I would imagine you have some people that already have a, a taste or an experience of some kind like what you're talking about. Yeah. How about for the ones that don't? Yeah. How, how do you host or invite in this possibility? It'd be very interesting. First, know. we have to determine a sense of readiness for this kind yeah. of work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but there's, there's the readiness just for treatment period, which mm-hmm. is a threshold thing. Yeah. Um, but then once we know that somebody's really treatment ready, we have right. to figure out, is this the kind of work that they're interested in at yeah. this point in their life? Yeah. And then for those who are not, it's a process of getting them to a place that they're going to resonate with, a different yeah. program, whatever. Okay. Mm-hmm. But what's left is uh, the group of people that are that are interested. And some of them may have had experiences mm-hmm. and practice, and some of them are very new, but they're interested in yeah. it. Yeah. And then it's a matter of taking them along in a pace that works for them and their system. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you're sort of like the first week you're going to have this amazing mm-hmm. experience of yeah. oneness. Yeah. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's sort of working on all of the, the mm-hmm. stories and the issues and the patterns the traumas, all that, the shame, just, you know, sort of dismantling all that and get them to feel it and resolve it. And then as they get clearer and more present, if they become interested in the, in the deeper recognition, you know, the question about who you are, mm-hmm. then we can go there. But we, we tend not to go there until someone is ready for that. Yeah. And maybe uh, never. Maybe it's, maybe it's related to this point, but, um, uh, you know, there's been a, a lot of thought in writing over the years. Starting My first exposure was, was with uh, John Wellwood writing about spiritual bypassing. How does that idea of where I could, I could use uh, some kind of quasi-transformational approach and bypass all of my, um, I'll just use trauma, just bypass all my trauma. Any thoughts about that uh, rooted in your own experience? I mean, in some ways I just think of life as a bypass because what we're doing is we're trying, we're searching for something, Mm -hmm. whether it's enlightenment or drugs or alcohol or a a trophy wife or trophy husband or Mm -hmm. house or whatever. And and what is it that we want that to give us? We want it to give us something that we feel like we don't have already. What is it that we don't have? We don't have that feeling of wholeness. What do we have is we have pain. Mm -hmm. And the idea is if if I just get this or if I just get that, I won't have to feel this pain. Even people who are spiritual seekers, if you ask them, you know, you're okay, you're looking for enlightenment or wholeness, but what is it that you're that you're running from? Mm-hmm. So if we start focusing on what is it that I'm running from, mm-hmm. then I have to take a look here mm-hmm. and then I find out, oh, well, what, it's kind mm-hmm. of a natural movement of life to want to bypass this because mm-hmm. this is very painful. Yeah. Um, and so really, all, in some ways, just started the, the, the basic rules that we're all doing that. Yeah. We're all bypassing, and some of us have just learned how to do it less. Yeah. And the, the more that we can do it less and come into our mm-hmm. present experience and be with it as it is, mm-hmm. the, the healthier we are, the happier we are, basically. But, Say just a word more about that. I'm right with you. I feel like yeah. is that how, how does my, my becoming less driven uh, to cover over the, the yeah. fear or the anxiety or the shame, how does that, how does that correlate with my happiness? Think about like when, if you were a kid and you were raising your child and you taught that child every time they feel something to come down and be very tenderly and gentle with it 
and allow it and to be totally mindful with it. And when they have a story that comes up that's painful, teaching them how to be mindful of that, to let it come and go. If you taught a kid to do that, theoretically, mm -hmm. the kid would not grow up sort of trying to bypass their mm -hmm. feelings. But what we do is we don't, we don't have a society like that. <laughs> we have a society where our parents are unconscious, they're having unconscious children, mm -hmm. and we're not, we don't value the experience of mm -hmm. teaching people how to feel yeah, right. and to be okay with feelings. So in some ways, life is like a bypass. It's, we've developed all these clever and sometimes very effective ways to not have to feel. Yeah. But if we were learn, or we somehow learn at some point to feel exactly what's going on and to sort of take a deeper look at it, um, we would be more settled here in the present moment. Yeah. We would be happy and more comfortable. And so as we're more settled here in the present moment, we're naturally not looking for other things and other people mm -hmm. to make us whole. So if you just think about that, it's just quite natural that we would want to bypass, and, that, and yeah. we're all kind of just doing that. Mm -hmm. Not just people on the spiritual path, but I mean, what is drug and alcohol use but a major bypass, right? Yeah. Yeah. Someone who's really addicted to work, if you set, set them down and you ask them, sit here with me for five <laughs> to 10 minutes and don't say anything, right? Eventually what's gonna come up is a restlessness, yeah. uh, an unease, yeah. and I'll say, could it be that that you're running from? Yeah. So there's the bypass, yeah. so we can just talk yeah. about that. Yeah. You remind me of uh, uh, four or five years ago, I was invited by a friend of mine uh, to go back to the University of Wisconsin at Madison, where Richard Davidson's been doing his work on mindfulness over the years. And uh, I didn't meet him there, but I met several of his uh, uh, colleagues. And there were two things that they talked about, and you just reminded me of both of them, is that apparently in the Wisconsin educational system, they're actually teaching children mindful awareness uh, techniques from day one. Awesome. It's just like amazing. That, that's happening running. more than yeah, yeah. in a few different places. Okay, actually. really heartened to hear that. Yeah. The second thing that, that comes to my mind, and it's also deeply moving to me, is that they, they uh, utilize restorative justice practices in, again, I think it was Wisconsin, in their uh, state penal system or whatever you would call that which uh, include uh, uh, restoration of relationships with others, but also restoration of relationship with oneself via mindfulness. And so that in the jails and the prisons there, they're also bringing mindfulness yeah. in, in a, uh, in a way training what was, was never available. And, and my understanding of my father worked in the prison system for years and years uh, is that it's a 100% highly traumatized population there oh, with yeah. no tools to deal with it. Mm. So we send them out expecting that they're not going to recidivize. Yeah. Well, obviously, this is not going to happen. Yeah. So, and even yeah. talk, right, and so I, I love the fact that mindfulness is spreading, but it, even the word mindfulness, because what we're really talking about is, is, to, is being aware yeah. of what's really going on in our yeah. experience. And, yeah. and if you take it, even take that word off there, because there's yeah. even clinicians out here, once they hear, hear that word, if they mm -hmm. don't use mindfulness, they're, they're even going to be turned off because it's like everything is threatening. Right? Mm -hmm. Don't think of it that way. Good. <laughs> think of it in Thank terms you. of. Yeah, this is good. Right? Yeah. Think of it in terms of we are human beings who are not conscious of our inner experience. Yeah. Yeah. So, mindfulness really, or just awareness, is about becoming conscious of our inner experience. Yeah. Yeah. And why wouldn't we want that for everybody? Because if we're operating on scripts that we're not conscious mm -hmm. of, and those scripts are making us act out in mm -hmm. certain ways, I mean, we're being blind to that. So yeah. I just yeah. brought that up because uh, there's a lot of hoopla about mindfulness now, yeah. and I'm almost yeah. like, eh, yeah. because once you turn it into that, you know, and it's, yeah. it's just talk about it more in terms of what is the real issue yeah. and what is mindfulness just is, is about being aware mm -hmm. of our interior experience and all of our experience. Yeah. Then I think, because you can always, there's always the chance that this will just be a trend and nobody, people won't take this deep enough. Mm -hmm. They'll just say, well, you know, mindfulness is the new yoga. So we're going to do that on Wednesday nights, right? Yeah. 
But a good mindfulness practice is something you do every day, yeah. all day. You know, yeah. you know. I just don't want to sort of water it down. I remember the late '80s. I I had my flirtation with the, what was called the men's movement at that point. I'm a lifelong drummer. I've drummed my whole life, and there was 15 minutes of fame for being a drummer during that time. It was really cool. And so you'd go to these conferences. It was really cool to be a drummer. Yeah. And I had this very distinct feeling that it was going to be last about 15 minutes long, and it did. And when it was done, I still continued to drum. <laughs> it doesn't know. really stop. But I feel like this around mindfulness is yeah, like yeah. this is its 15 minutes of fame. It's on the cover of Time magazine, and soon enough, yeah. it will no longer be cool. Yeah. And I really appreciate your uh, wanting to redeem it from from uh, a language that turns it into another thing. Yeah. That I, I do mindfulness, or I teach mindfulness, or I go to my mindfulness group on Wednesday night. Please, that's yeah. not at all what you're talking well, about. Well, there's a little bit of danger because mindfulness, I can't say that it came from the East, but, but the Eastern traditions mm -hmm. are much more mindfulness-based. Mm -hmm. And then when it came over here, a little bit of therapy hijacked it. Uh, mm -hmm. The therapist community sort yeah. of hijacked it and said, oh, now it's called DBT, or we're going to create right. DBT. Right. That, that's beautiful that those studies are being done. But but then it gets into the culture. I just want to make sure that we don't lose yeah. sight of that mindfulness is an age-old thing. Yeah. It's not subject to trends, really. It's something yeah. that that, yeah. that man has been seeking to know who he really yeah. is for thousands of years, and that's really always going to go on, yeah. Yeah. regardless of any fad around yeah. mindfulness. Yeah. So I just yeah. want to... appreciate you know. this very much. I tell you what, we're going to wind up in just a minute, but I want to ask you... I want to follow on what we just talked yeah, yeah. about because I suspect that your most recent book—I've not read your books yet—but yet, um, your most recent book may may talk about what we're just talking about yeah. right now. And if it doesn't, so be it. But I'd love—I'd uh, love to support you and promote uh, your read your writings. And I wonder if this is uh, for a resource for those that would like to follow. Uh, in more detail, if that's a possible resource, uh, are your books and uh, they are. I you mean, want to say a word here. So I want to tell something about the about the Killaby Center for Recovery, yeah, which please. is in Palm yeah. Springs. Yeah, yeah, it's a treatment center. We treat addiction, trauma, anxiety, depression through this approach. Mm -hmm. And you can go to KillabyCenter.com for that. Mm -hmm. And then I've got several books. I would yeah. say um, the two ones that come to mind are uh, the Unfindable Inquiry and then Natural Rest for Addiction. Okay. So not, they're both on Amazon. Yeah. Natural Rest for Addiction is really the, my mindfulness book for addiction. Okay. And then the Unfindable Inquiry is a particular inquiry tool that starts to help you examine mm -hmm. these false scripts, like these mm -hmm. deficiency stories, mm -hmm. like I'm not good enough, and it starts to show you that that's not who you are, yeah. Yeah. and it gives you that sense of presence. So it's a nice little mm -hmm. tool. I mean, for those who are kind of more like enlightenment seekers. Mm -hmm. Some of the older books, one called Reflections of the One Life, is a is a a book of daily pointers for people who are deeply investigating these issues and yeah. stuff like that. But yeah, those the two, first two I mentioned are the good resources. And then another one is that some people can't come to a treatment center. Yeah. We have facilitators who do this work all over the world. And you can go to livinginquiries.com mm -hmm. and get with a facilitator and work online with them. Or, it's a wonderful resource. Yeah. Thank you. Is there anything beyond what we've talked about that you're dying to share? Anything that uh, I, I feel very nourished by yeah. our conversation? It feels complete. It's, it's great. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Really appreciate it. I hope this has been helpful to our audience. Really appreciate you joining with Scott Killaby here today with Ask an Addiction Specialist. We'll be back next week. We're actually going to, uh, the next couple of weeks, be focusing specifically on shame. Uh, uh, and I, I want to say we're going to be focusing on unshaming. So we'll be looking more deeply. We've touched on that, including today, and we'll be touching on that theme for the next couple of weeks. Scott, I'm really happy to have met you. Thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you.